into a new chapter. And it's chapter 11 of Romans, and it's all a package, 9, 10, and 11. And really, it is focused around a theme that is bringing forth a question. What about the condition of Israel? And especially during the time of Paul, we can say. In summary, it means that the Jews were rejecting God and His Gospel. Paul had a concern about that. And at the same time, we see that there are Gentiles that are flowing right into the kingdom of God. It's all a part of God's plan. And that is the greater purpose of it all. Even though there's a great concern about the lost Jews that uh, Paul uh, knew so well, he was one of them. But a greater concern is the purpose of God. And I think that's really where we always want to focus everything. There are things in our hearts or minds constantly, and uh, yet uh, there's a greater concern, and it's called God's purpose. And we know that it can never be thwarted. And it's quite a topic. We know in Romans 8 that we see that God will never depart from the ones who He loves. And that is forever. It's eternal. What an awesome topic that is. And as he introduced that, we saw a sovereign God in Romans 8 and then he proceeded right on into chapter 9. And it's like, okay, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that immediately, at least to a Jew, would be a question that they would have to raise. And it would be, okay, if there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, then Paul, what you're saying is contradicting what God has said if you're saying He uh, has now turned to the Gentiles. How does the purpose fit in here? So, the very purpose of chapters 9, 10, and 11 prove that God's purpose has not failed. And He has given us one proof after another, argument after argument, that nobody can answer outside of saying, you're right, Paul, it's true. You see, God's purpose has never failed, is not failing now, and will never ever fail in through eternity. He's never been wrong, has He? Ever. So, He is perfect in all that He does, and His plan and purpose of salvation will reach its consummation. It will go through all the way. Chapter 9, Paul argued that it's God's choice. That's really what it came down to and he used Jacob and Esau. I say this about every week, but if we get this package of Romans 9, 10, and 11 taken in all of its context, not pulling out a verse here and there to try to prove something, but looking at the whole thing in its spectrum, then I think we can get a really good handle on it. Really, Romans 9 is that People are saved by God's choice, whether you're Jewish or whether you are Gentile. And that is the idea. But we have to remember, man is still fully responsible in what he does with how God reveals to him. Chapter 10 then 
takes the very same thought, builds upon it in detail, salvation depends upon God's will and His purpose. We see in Romans 10 that salvation is by faith. And so that's the part that we have. Although faith is granted to us, we are to exercise that faith and believe. It's salvation or justification by faith, as he said in Romans 10.4, and it's only Christ that does that. So no one is saved because of their nationality, because of their religion, or because of their works. They are saved solely by the grace of God and His choice, His call. And so chapter 10 has the same conclusion as Romans chapter 9 did. And so as we move on further, I guess you get a next question here is, so is God done with the Jews? That's where it would leave us because they were disobedient. It said at the end of chapter 10, and we see that He stretched out His hands all day long to them, but they were disobedient and an obstinate people. That's where it left off and one would say, okay, He must be done with them now. That's it. And that's why Romans 11 now comes in. Do you see how all of these are packed together? Some say it's a parenthesis, and I would not differ with that, but in another sense I say it's just in continuity with where we were at before in chapter 8. Because it's all dealing with the sovereign God, and all of this book is about that. By the time we come to the conclusions of Romans 11, we will see a great praise there, and oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways. That is tremendous, isn't it? So... We come to this question then. Chapter 11 is going to look into the future. And he's going to show how great, how glorious the purpose of God really is. And that's we just read a verse that wrapped it all up at the very end of chapter 11. It's regarding Israel and the Gentiles. And so many people have so many interpretations of this text, and I don't know how you can go but one way. There are Jews, there are Gentiles. There are elect Jews, there are elect Gentiles. They're all saved by the same way. They are all uh, His people. But yet God still had a promise to the Jewish person, and Paul was alluding to that. God is not done with the Jew, and we'll see by the end or near the end of Romans 11, he proves that. And even some of the staunch amillennials who are totally against uh, God uh, continuing on with Israel, many of them will say he's done, the church has taken its place, their turn is over. Matter of fact, there are no such things as Jews today, they have all been depleted. And, uh, I mean, such crazy things that goes way beyond what Scripture uh, says. And that's why I say some of it's just lunacy because they're not treating this whole text. Start at 9. Take every verse. Go in 10. Don't pull out a little verse, but take the whole thing and see it in its whole aspect. And then look at the Old Testament and how it lines up with that. And that's what Paul has been doing all the way through here. 
He'll use the Psalms. He'll use the prophets. He will use Moses' law. Uh, all the writings in the Old Testament. And He proves that. And so that's why I say, that's why we are continuing to kind of break this down in detail. Because so many people are making it confusing when they really shouldn't. Uh, the, the question is, though, is here we are as we're coming up to chapter 11. The Jews seem to be outside. And so does this mean that they will remain there? And Romans 11 will make that very, very clear. And so, unless I'm taking this all wrong, uh, along with many, 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 many good expositors down through history, I'm not just coming up with this on my own. It's through many people and many Reformed people who are committed to verse-by-verse uh, -verse expository preaching. They will still come up with that conclusion even though they have a little trouble with Israel at the same time, they say it must mean that God still has a plan for that nation, that people, as Paul talks about nations here in this text. So with that being said, I'm not going out on a limb and doing my own thing. This is borrowed from many, many people down through history because they are true to God's Word and they can't just take it spiritually. So, I say that very often because I know there is, uh, there's much confusion because all the rules seem to go out the window sometimes when people have a trouble with the nation of Israel. So, uh, we hope that this can help make it clear as we go through. Uh, it's not my little hobby horse. It's where we're at. It's what we're trying to do to be honest with what God is saying. Let's pray. Father, such a controversial section that we're in today. Uh, it really shouldn't be, but we know that you give us truth and you give the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand you better. It is overwhelming sometimes when we think of these kind of thoughts. But your plan and your purpose is coming true and will whenever it reaches fulfillment. And we worship and adore you. You are magnificent. We are in awe of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have a big chunk today, folks. Romans 11, 1 through 10. And I'll tell you what, I'll do the reading of it as we go through the text this morning. And uh, we'll take it a pretty well a verse at a time. The title of this is A Remnant According to God's Choice. That actually is taken out of a section that we're dealing with today. It's out of verse 5, right at the end of it, if you'll notice. And Paul has stated this already before. A remnant according to God's choice. A lot of people would have trouble with that, wouldn't they? Uh, we give uh, proof here by witnesses. The witnesses, starting with Paul, let's look at verse 1, Paul himself. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
So we're just not talking about saying, okay, well, now that Israel is the church, and so we have to, every time it says Israel, supplant and put church in there, because you've got a problem right here in verse 1. And all through chapter 11, all through where we've been reading, you cannot do that. And because Paul is saying, I too am an Israelite. He's not talking, I'm a Christian. He's talking, I'm an Israelite, and he proves it because of his blood. He descended, a seed of Abraham. And Christians will say, yeah, we're seed of Abraham because we believe. Well, that's true. We're in that sense of the promise of the tribe of Benjamin. Are we from the tribe of Benjamin? Well, they would have to spiritualize that one too, wouldn't they? Paul is very plain. He's very clear. When it's plain, take it as plain, which most of the Bible is. I'm not a wooden literalist, but most of the time, Scripture is very clear. And whenever we see something that is to be taken in a spiritual sense, we take it that way. And uh, so that uh, seems like I'm really adamant on this, but I, I want to make clear that God has a plan for Israel. God has a plan for the Gentiles. He has an ultimate plan that is elect be chosen, but yet He doesn't do away with a certain group of people. And that's what Paul is saying simply. If anybody can raise up an argument on that, I dare you. Uh, because it's laid out so clear. So he says, has God cast away His people? And Paul is expecting, absolutely not. Has God cast away His people? What do you think? huh? You don't really believe that, do you? Is this possible? That he would thrust them away. I say then, God has not thrust his people away, has he? He has not done that. This is a question that's to be answered in the negative. And in this case, it is in the very strongest Greek language that you could possibly have. A lot of people, when they want to go to the strongest language, and not we're not talking spiritually here, we'll go to... Taking God's name in vain, people will curse and cuss and say horrible words. Well, what he does here is he does the emphatic, may it never be or may Kenita. And there's nothing more emphatic than that. It's saying no way. It is absolutely unthinkable. It cannot be that way. God will not reject his people, Israel as he states here. I didn't say it. Paul said it. And all through the prophets, they say it. Jesus said it. David said it. Isaiah said it. Some of these guys are going to be looking at today. But first he starts with a witness of himself. Now that's kind of unusual that Paul starts with himself. He says, no way is God done with them. I am an Israelite. I am really concerned about them. I am one. I came from a Baptist background. There were some things that uh, I believe that the Baptists were very, very true on. Many, many things. And uh, they took up the call during the Reformation and they held true to those Reformation theologies that we hold so dear. But it starts getting... Uh, kind of spread out as time goes on, it goes to more of a man-centered gospel than it does God-centered. And then when that happens, there's danger. And it happens in all 
churches it seems like uh, they can start out very good but a lot of negative things come in so today it has become very weak and as as a whole not running them down but i i used to say hey listen whenever i talk about the baptist i have a concern for them because there's a lot of people being led to a cheap salvation and they're not being taught these deep things of god it's very light it is something that um I believe that needs to be corrected and there are men in the Southern Baptist that are trying to straighten that out and uh, so therefore I can say Baptist well I are one I can say that that's where I came up that's where I learned a lot of things that's very helpful God used that um, and for the most part what they believe today I would believe in uh, as long as they hold true to the Word of God, but they have come with some precedence as of late, and uh, it is, uh, I think there's a danger there of wokeism has definitely appeared in uh, Southern Baptist. But I are one, I can run them down because that's my background. I'm not trying to run them down. And I'm not saying everyone is like that. I, I know I'm, I'm, I have kinfolk there. My folks were that, and cousins, and on and on down the line. Uh, and so I have a concern, though, that if it's not being presented in a biblical way or with some depth, it, uh, it does concern me. So that's the, the kind of thought that Paul had. Now look in Jeremiah 31, 37. Um, now this one is not necessarily a quote here, but I can tell you what Paul is thinking. What about Israel? God's done with Israel. Oh yeah? Is that so? Well, let's turn to Jeremiah 31, which is a covenant chapter. It makes a covenant. God does with His people. And it's Israel, but it's also people who are His that become believers to Christ. Verse 35, thus says the Lord, Who gives the sun for a light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night? He sustains His creation, doesn't He? Who stirs up the sea that its waves roar. He brings on the weather. He's in total control, isn't He? The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. Now my, my question is, could this ever happen? Could God's creation somehow, by Satan coming up and creating all sorts of chaos, everything be dismissed of all of God's creation? Could that happen? We know better. It's about God's sovereignty here. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Okay, I'll tell you, I'm going to put an oath here. If all my creation is destroyed and it doesn't exist anymore, then they will cease to be a nation. Wow. But if they don't, what does that mean? means all of His promises about them is still true. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, can they? And the foundation of the earth searched out below, we have all this technology, can it be done? Then I also will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. 
that is just taken out of a section that's dealing with a new covenant. Now granted, we are in that new covenant ourselves because of Abraham and because of faith. We are descendants in that sense, but there's also the blood. There's also a nation, literal people who God has dealt with throughout all the Old Testament. All the way up, Christ is one. And even all the way up to Paul and even up to our day. So what it is, is that Jeremiah is so certain that God will forever love Israel. And Paul says, I'm living proof. He starts off with himself. Now, that would be subjective. We know, yeah, yeah, that's, that burning is your bosom there, Paul, right? You know, as the Mormons say. But we can use our own testimony. And they knew that his life had been changed and they knew that he was writing or actually teaching Scripture and he teaches the Old Testament as he gives new revelation. Uh, we know that Philippians 3.5, we're not going to turn there, but he said he's an Israelite there from the tribe of Benjamin. And the point is, is that he's fully Jewish. And since he's Jewish, and he's certainly a Christian, then God should not be done with the Jews because he's standing before them right there. That's a pretty good argument, isn't it? He says, no, he's not done with them. If he was, why would I even be here? It's an obvious truth. And he appeals to what God had done with him. He doesn't go into his testimony here, but he does say he's Jewish, that he's a Benjamite, he's chosen by God to be a servant of him by grace and by grace alone. And so he starts off with that. Folks, we have done something remarkable. We are now through verse 1. <laughs> Point 1. Now he uses point two. That's, uh, he knows that that's not enough. But he starts with that. And they can't deny that. But if you want some more depth, and he's been doing this all along, and he's going to give us Elijah the prophet, and Elijah comes out of the, the kings, first kings. Then we get one from Isaiah, who's a prophet. We get uh, a little bit from Moses. We've been seeing this week after week. That would be the law. And then he finishes off with David, who wrote the Psalms. Is he covering everything? He gives himself as an example, and then he gives all these other ones. This is just lock tight. You can't argue with Paul, because if you are, you're arguing with the Holy Spirit. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. So He answers. Remember He asked the question and then He said no. And then He says now in verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. By the way, His people there, you could say, well that's the church and it's all of us as believers and everything, but staying in the context. Look at verse 1. This is really where He's hitting at, so we have to stay fair with this. And as I uh, look at people like... Uh, James Montgomery Boyce and 
uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I use them quite a bit because they wrote great commentaries on this. There are many others. There are a few that would uh, dismiss that and say, well, it's everybody. Well, in a sense, okay, well, that's true. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You can say, well, that's the elect out of Israel. But as a whole, he's talking about the nation here. So we'll stay on that context. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. And this is why I say we're still on the nation Israel here. We've not bled over to us or the church because he's still saying Israel. He's using Elijah and Israelites here. So we're staying with that. And now we get into a prophet. Elijah is a prophet, right? Now, he's not a writing prophet like we would think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and so on and so forth. But he points to Scripture, and Scripture is always the authority, isn't it? And it's pinpointed, don't you like the preciseness of Paul's daggers? And so he gives it. He's establishing something. Paul states that not only is he a believer... But also there are many other Jewish people that were believers, that were chosen by God. And so the part under Elijah here, being the second witness, representing prophets, is talking about foreknowledge. God has not rejected, and he's using that same word, reject. He has not rejected, turned them back, whom he foreknew. Now that's a key word, isn't it? Uh, and we know what that means. I'm not even going to give the other side's view. I'm just going to give them the right one. And Romans 8, foreknowledge, prognosco, is meaning something like a relationship with the nation, these people. He foreknew Israel. He elected Israel. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, we'll see that that was an elect nation. Now there are people who are elect within that elect nation. But here, he's still on that context, trying to stay fair with that. Foreknowledge, uh, previously we saw it in Romans 8, 29, and it pertains to the ones who are the elect people of God. He has a knowledge, a real epi. A real knowledge, a knowledge that is truly knowing them. That's the idea. So, uh, Godet, uh, a really good commentator from a Reformed side, says God foreknew the nation as believing and saved, and sooner or later they cannot fail to be both. He's saying, yeah, they are elect. uh, And believing and saved, and there are people in that. But ultimately, he cannot fail that, that there will still be an Israel that he will save at the ultimate, at the end. So that is the idea of foreknowledge. The people who he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in this passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. 
Lord, they have killed Your prophets. They have torn down Your altars and I alone am left. And they are seeking My life. Now that's Elijah. Elijah just had a great triumph defeating the seventh or uh, the the um, prophets of Baal and that was a all day event and God proved that he was the one true God as all of the idolatry gods were defeated and so it was in a rout Jezebel who is the queen and uh, the wife of Ahab uh, now is very angry. And so she now threatens to get him killed, sends men after him, and from what was a total absolute victory, and Elijah has a mountaintop experience, the next thing you know, he's running. And he runs southward. He heads to around the Mount Sinai area. God speaks to him, and Elijah was complaining. And that's just what we read here. Lord, they've killed your prophets. This is up in the, the north. Those ten tribes, they've torn down your altars. I alone am left. I'm the only one, God. You know, this is it. And, uh, you know, there it is. We do this and look at this. Now they want to kill me and they're seeking my life. And so God speaks to him after he complains. God renewed him hope as He gives this to him. And it comes out of 1 Kings 19, this whole text, and you get to 1 Kings 19.18, and Paul quotes it. God says, I have kept more for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, you know what? What he's saying here that he has a remnant. Because in verse 5, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time, right now as Paul is saying it, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. I'll finish it on out. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He's been saying that all through Romans and he gets that in there again. And he gets in, it's according to God's gracious choice. Uh, and, and so you see that and we think, okay, what's a remnant? It's a part of something that's bigger, something that has been taken from it or split from it. It's a bit of fabric left over from a larger piece. Or it's a, a bit of a piece of a huge rug that's laid out and there's still a part of that. And they can even sell that to people who have smaller rooms. It's a remnant. We've probably all have thought about or have done it. We bought carpet remnants that were much cheaper. But that's not the case here, that these people are cheap. <laughs> they are still a part of the, uh, what they came from, but this is what be, would be considered God's choice, a believing remnant, whether it be captives or such. And all through the Old Testament, this is, this is not some kind of anomaly, some strange thing. Throughout the Old Testament, you see remnant. It's not odd at all, is it? And that's what Paul is saying. And he, and he is Elijah. 
Everybody knows that story about Elijah. And, you know, God has many Christians all over the world that are people just like us. Some have bigger assemblies where they meet. Some have small ones like us where they meet meet under a tent out in the woods. Some have great buildings that have tremendous edifices. But in those buildings are people that are chosen by God. And that is what is the beauty of that. And I think then of our culture, our nation, dealing with the nature nation of Israel, we have the nation of America, and of course our culture has gone down the slippery slope, but there are many devout believers that are here in America, right? Whether they be of whatever denomination, they believe in Christ as their Savior. So, um, we, we have that thought. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I thought, had something really helpful here. Uh, of course, uh, you know, he is not from America, and he's from the British Isles, but here's what he said. The remnant gives a guarantee for the nation, the nation of Israel. That remnant that God has gives a guarantee that there is still hope for that nation. He's not done with them. As Jones says here, he says the remnant is a part of the nation and because a remnant is saved, you cannot and must not say that the whole nation is rejected. He's an expositor, folks. And he knows he has to be true to this certain point. There are very few things that I would disagree with Jones and this is not one of them here. Um... He knows that he has to deal with it, and so he does. And do you, you cannot and you must not say that the whole nation is rejected. The remnant is part of the whole, and if it is saved, that tells us something about the whole. W-H-O-L-E. So I think that's quite a large statement. And... Uh, even many ah mills have to treat this fairly, and so therefore, and so you know what, there is still, you know, we hear about the word dispensation. That's a dispensation of seeing that God doesn't have two ways of salvation, but He has. So often He uses Jews and He uses Gentiles. Now in the church, they are all equal; they're the same. But does that, you know, it says there's no no female. Uh, no male, no Jew, Gentile. Does that mean there's no males and females today? Well, the left liberals would like to tell you something different today, wouldn't they? We know better. Yes, there are males and females, but we're all one in Christ, and that's the idea. So that, with that said now, all grace, it's done here. And you'll notice that uh, in verse 4 where God responds here, gives the answer in the same way then there is also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Right? And then he emphasizes grace in verse 6. And I like what he does here whenever he says in verse 4, The divine response is like this. I have kept for myself 7,000 
I have reserved for myself. Do you notice that where the action, who's causing the action here? God does, as He always does. I reserved them. I kept them. I keep them as the ones who are chosen. So anyway, God chose the remnant to believe. So now, we've gone through two now. He used Elijah, and He used the 7,000. He says, don't you remember this? So He's used Himself, He's used Elijah. And now He comes back with another one, who He has used several times already in previous sections. Chapter 10. Isaiah, representing the prophets. Again, Verse 7 and 8, I'll read that. What then? What Israel is seeking has not obtained. By the way, if you put the word church in there, you got a real problem. <laughs> what the church is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What the church is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen, those who were elect in the church, but... The church is the elect ones, right? The church means the called out ones. And so always, whenever it's appealing to that, it's not talking about you have the false believers and true believers, and then that's the church. Well, depending on, on what you're talking about, for the most part, the church is talking about the, the elect ones, the chosen ones. Ecclesia, ecclesia, the called out ones. So again, we can see his context is Israel. And the reason I'm doing this is not to convince you guys. Because we've been over this through many, 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 many years. But I am saying if somebody were to uh, maybe raise up an argument about this and you start using this text, they are in trouble. Because they can't even weasel around this. Even the best expositors know they cannot and they have to be faithful to the Word here. You see what happens? We get wrapped up in our own little neighborhood. And so we choose, okay, I want to be in this group. And by the way, if you keep doing those groups, all of a sudden, you know what, you get down to one. It's you and you alone. <laughs> because there are many different views on many different things. But there are certain things we have to agree upon that the Word of God is the authority and can we at least think about this and... You know, let's let's reason together. And so, uh, you know, ever ultimately, when it comes down to it, we are believers in Jesus Christ. We're saved by the blood of Christ. I mean, to get down to simplicity, it helps to say, "Okay, I am a and name the denomination, and I am reformed." But even in the reform movement, you've got a few different elements that they disagree, and you go right on down. And I, I can tell you. Ultimately, it's not that that matters. Those are human divisions. It's good to kind of help show, here's what we believe, here's what we are, and you can use one word, and most people can kind of get the idea, but later on they want to know a little more. You know. And the thing is, is okay, I think that they're on the right realm, though. They believe the authority of the Word of God. They're believing in Christ and Christ alone. There are certain elements that you cannot disagree upon. 
and uh, certainly that would be uh, an issue. Now, whether somebody believed or not believed, I wouldn't say you're not a Christian if you, if you misin- or misinterpret this. <laughs> Interpret it differently than us, but I can say, going into the depth here, I think we've got a big case. Don't you think we have a case? I think we have Paul behind us here. I think we have Jesus behind us. I do believe we have uh, the prophets. And we have David behind us. We just go on and on. <laughs> So here we go, verse 7 and 8. What Israel is seeking is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Uh, Right now we're going to use the uh, prophet Isaiah in verse 7 and verse 8. Israel didn't obtain it. Well, we've already seen that before. We've seen that in chapter 9, verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. They didn't obtain it, did they? Look in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. The Gentiles were attaining it, but the Gentiles were not obtaining it. What do we have? We have two groups here again. Gentiles, Jews. You can't read church into Israel here as he says Israel pursued this and they didn't attain it. They didn't obtain that going through the law. Now Robert Haldane, another Reformed theologian, uh, you'll notice most of my thoughts come from Reformed theologians because I I can trust them and realize that they are uh, uh, borrowing so much that's coming down from other uh, histories that have come from other men. It goes through that line all the way to Paul, to Christ, prophets and such. Now, Haldane says this about verse 7. He asks, what's the result of all that the Apostle has been saying? What's the result of it? It is this. Israel as a nation has not obtained righteousness of which it was in search of, which we looked at Romans 9 there, but the election among them, the chosen remnant reserved by God, spoken above, has obtained it. Can anything more expressly affirm the doctrine of election? They obtained it because God first gave it to them. And that's what he's saying. First gave it to the nation of Israel, but he also gives it then. We understand the believing out of that nation. Look in Romans 10, verse 2 and 3. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God not in accordance with knowledge. You see, they sought after, they thought what were the things of God. They really sought it after, right? They had the oracles, they had the Word of God, they had the law. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. And that's the problem. They sought not God, but to establish their own righteousness. I am good. I'm going to heaven because I, right, and fill in the blanks, 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's what it is. It's the righteousness of God that we are to be after. Paul's been saying that all along. And so here we get um, an Isaiah quote. He, Paul says this in verse 7. And he says some were chosen and others were hardened. And he says it was written this way. And he guess, guess who he uses? Isaiah. The very first line that you have there in verse 8 after written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Now there are other quotes in this verse, and if you have a study Bible, uh, you will have capital letters or something set aside there that you can see, oh, this was a quote. Um, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Where did that come from? Paul knows. Paul quoted it right out of Isaiah 29.10. He doesn't say it was Isaiah, but let's take a look at it. Stupor. Isaiah 29.10 For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. A spirit of stupor. A spirit of sleep. The inability to use your faculties. It's under the influence of a drug, let's say. Not fully conscious. That's the way to define that idea there. A stupor. Um, and so they are in... They, they went to sleep. They're sleepy. Now, it's saying something here as we look at this that's rather disturbing to many people. We've already covered in Romans 9 and there is a hardening that God gives. There's a hardening that people already have. They have a rejection of God. There is a numbness there. But I will tell you, God ordained the lost to dishonor and wrath for the sin of people. Westminster Confession says this, there is a righteous judgment for their wrongdoing. It is not arbitrary. They are lost not because God merely consigns them to it, but they're lost because Israel refused to hear the prophets. Their hearing then became dull or impaired and then they not only were disobedient, they were obstinate. And God gave them up, just like in Romans 1, He gave them up in a judicial manner to their own hardness that they so enjoy. Does that make sense? So God has already ordained that there be punishment. And so forth it gives, but here we can understand, yeah, God's doing this, but coming from man, He is disobedient and obstinate. So there's still a responsibility always, even though God has choice. I like to leave it there.
Speaking of reprobation, here's where I will go though on this. Proverbs 16, 4. You have the Psalms, you have the Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Even the wicked for the day of evil. I I know it's there. I also know that those wicked are responsible for their sins. God leaves them in that condition. How best to harden because you leave a lost sinner in his sins, which he enjoys so much, you leave him there, he becomes even more hardened. And then you see things get worse and worse. It progressively gets worse. So we turn to John 13, 18. John is one who believed this theology too. And also, Jesus is who he's reporting about and speaking. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He says, I don't speak of all of you. Not every one of you. I know who I've chosen. But the scripture has to be fulfilled. Who's he speaking of there? Judas. Judas did what he did. Judas chose to do that. But is Judas a chosen one? Moving on, chapter 17 of John. This is Jesus' great prayer. Scripture is full of depth, isn't it? John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, he's praying to the Father here, I was keeping them in your name, Father, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It goes back to the Old Testament goes back to something that was spoken of before even Judas. David wrote about him. Let's go to Jude, verse 4. Just before Revelation. Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're marked out for condemnation long before this. So we have that hardening that we see here introduced by Isaiah in Isaiah 29.10 that we already read. God gave them a spirit of stupor 
Well, the, they were already hardened, and he just let them sleep, and they fell. But in this verse, we have another quote, and it's out of the law, and it's Moses. Boy, he is power-packed today. He uses himself, he uses Elijah. He uses Isaiah, and now he uses Moses, who represents the law. When you say the law and the prophets, what are you saying? You're saying Scripture. You're saying the Old Testament. Everything that had written beforehand. Okay, let's look at it. Moses said, uh, Eye to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. Moses was giving really a prophecy to these people, but yet he's also giving a past. Actually, as they had been in the wilderness, turn to Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 as he finishes our Romans 11:8 out. Paul uses Isaiah and Moses. Just brilliant, isn't it? You have to be amazed by this. Moses is telling them, You've seen all the Lord did as He delivered you out of Egypt. You saw how He fed you, gave you water. You saw how He took care of you, gave you the Shekinah glory. All that He did. And all the trials, you've seen the great signs and wonders. Here is verse 4. Yet to this day, and Moses wrote this, so it was at His time, yet all the way up to this day, The Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. That's puzzling. They were spiritually blind. They were spiritually blind because they wanted to be spiritually blind, and they were blind to all that He had done for them. He'd give them food, they'd complain. Give them water, they would complain. He had taken them to deliverance and they complained because it was hot or it would be cold at night although he provided he provided everything for them of course later on he talks about their sandals they have last through all the time they are in the wilderness never wear out for 40 years i mean one miracle after another God is so totally take care of them they're totally did he fail to give them revelation they're spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. God has a judicial hardening because of their unbelief. Okay, now what we want to do is turn to the New Testament. Let's turn to John 12.40. John has a thought about this kind of theology also. It's rather troubling. He quotes Isaiah verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and He hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. That's amazing, isn't it? John is just quoting Isaiah. It says in verse 39, they've become such hardened people that He said, they could not believe, for Isaiah said this. They get to the point where he blinds them. Now there's a total blinding where he, he, there's no more revelation that comes from him. Total rejection at total revelation is condemnation. Matthew 13.13 13, Jesus 
giving parables right out of the Lord's mouth. Jesus says this. This is our loving Jesus, and He is loving in every way. Matthew 13, 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes on in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Jesus quotes Isaiah, who actually got his thoughts from Jesus by the Spirit of God as he was being given the very Word of God to write down. You will keep, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. Well, there we go. God's judicial hardening because of that stiff-necked unbelief that they had. James Montgomery Boyce says this, if the blessings of God are misused, they will inevitably harden our hearts and propel, propel us into further sins and eventually lead into even further and greater judgment. I think I have a passage uh, in Malachi. Right at the back of the Old Testament. Verse 2, chapter 2, 2-2. Two, two. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. That's Malachi right at the end of the Old Testament. So, what Moses was originally saying here, he says, up to his time, it had already been that way. From Moses' time all the way to now is what Paul is saying here in our Romans 10. Or 11, sorry. Uh, as, as he said, and the rest were hardened, just as written. He's, he's talking about that hardening, and now he's saying this is happening right now. This is even in his time. This condition that Israel is in happened during the time of Moses and Isaiah, and was still happening during the time of Paul. And we sat here as a witness and realized that it's still happening today over in Israel as there's a nation there and people are flooding there. There's a people as a whole, they are atheistic. They don't even believe in a God. Now there are some who are very legalistic Jews too. And there are some who are believers in the Messiah. Not very many. A remnant. But out of some of those people that are living right now, they could be 
ones who trust in the Messiah. That are just like us. And they become one people. What about the nation of Israel, right? But we see how they did. Now, we have used Paul. We have used Elijah. We have used Isaiah. We have used Moses. We have one more left. It's the Psalms. Usually when you ever see the Law and the Prophets, it's kind of taken in the whole thing. Sometimes you see the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Well, Paul is very complete today as he gives all the above. Now the Psalms. He says not only did Isaiah say that, oh, he didn't say it, and he says Moses. He didn't even use Moses here, but those quotes, they know. Because they were all throughout in their text, so I think these were the particular ones that we can say. And then he says, oh, and David. David says this. David. David, the psalm writer. Oh, the king. What do they think of Moses? Oh, they highly regard him. What do they think of David? They highly regard him. So here we go. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. We've just gone ten verses and I'm not so sure if we've gotten our answer. Well, yeah, we have. But for those who cannot see, are not going to understand this, but what was the original question? Uh, God has not rejected His people, has He? I think He's already proven it. But yet He has more to go, so we have the rest of chapter 11. Just for a few, few brief moments and we'll be done here. David uh, basically wrote a psalm, and it's, it's uh, Psalm 69 that he's quoting from, verse 22 and verse 23. Why don't we go ahead and turn there and see what Paul quoted. Uh, again, it's, it's Psalm 69, 22, 23. And let's see how he uses this. Well, he's been right on, hasn't he? May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. David said this. David is talking about the wicked, the ones who are against him, the ones who are in Israel, the ones who were out to kill him. They were the Jews, for the most part. That's what he's talking about here. He says, David said this, let their table become a snare. Now, what's a, why does he say table? You think of the table where the family comes together. They all eat there. We just had Thanksgiving. People come to the table and partake. They eat of the fruitful blessings they have been given. God blesses the just and the unjust. And all the United States was really giving thanks to God whether they really knew it or not. It's Thanksgiving, and a lot of them, they even use that term. Hey, you coming over to our house for Thanksgiving? And none of them even believe in God at all. It's coming for Thanksgiving, and what are they doing? Well, they center around the feast that God has given them and blessed them. 
Look at the whole year what He's done. He's done that every day. They're blessed. They're at the table. It's a secure term. I love that. When the family comes together. There's a place when the family needs to come to the table and talk. and Where you feel secure. And you see the blessings that are there. Does that help? David says, let their table become a snare. Let their table become a snare. Trap. Traps are used for animals. Birds. They use traps for birds. They use traps for animals. The traps will be set and the animal will be going along unsuspecting and wham! Just like that. The trap gets them in the head and mashes them down and suddenly they are trapped. They're caught. So he uses snare, trap, stumbling block, retribution. Uh, the table is the benefits, the blessings, and their very benefits, their blessings become a curse. The table becomes a curse. It's a snare. It catches them. They trust uh, in all of the material goods, all the things that they have obtained, and that's what they're putting their trust in. And eventually, that will darken them. They cannot see or hear. If we don't obey God, God's blessings can become a curse to us. Let's read one of the commentators and they and they, they use places, for instance. Places where people feel secure. A great nation, for instance. And it is a place where people feel like nothing can come against them. And they're prospering like they've never prospered before. And it's places where they enjoyed unusual blessings. Amazing blessings. And today, some of those places are the most barren places in all the world. Look at the great nations down through the years. And you'll see some of those places now are deserts. Deserted. Nothing. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the danger with an affluent society, he wrote this not as an American, but he, he knew the downfall of Britain. They weren't a great nation anymore whenever he was preaching and writing. He said this, the danger with an affluent society always is to be content and to slacken. And the poorer nations actually are the ones who are working hard. Because we become so fat, we become people who really don't need anything. We are doing just well, thank you. The stumbling block, they have a trap, the snare. And so we know that their eyes are darkened. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not. Can't really see it, but the blessings are all around them. And then God withdraws His hands. Now, you look at the attitude of our country. Generally speaking to the Gospel, 
Why is it so unusual to see people going to church today? Why is that? It used to be, and I'm not saying everybody was Christians, but there was, it seems like there was a church on every block and every church was packed. Back in the 50s, the 60s, maybe even into the 70s a little bit, people, even if they were nominal, they went to church, or at least somewhat often. Uh, today, that is almost an anomaly. There are plenty of churches. Not that there aren't churches and there aren't people going to church, but why aren't people taking it seriously? Why do so many ridicule the gospel? We have Bibles today. We have multiple Bibles in our homes. Endless translations. All sorts of instruction. Evangelistic efforts going on in this nation. But it seems little makes any difference at all. We have been given a lot. We try to give out the Gospel. People don't care. They don't want to hear it. The table has been full, been blessed. Why can't the people see it? Why can't a revival come to this nation? Part of the answer may come that, in the sense that we're passing through a phase of judicial hardening that we see mentioned here all throughout the Bible that happened to Israel, happened to every nation. Sometimes God withdraws the influences of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to leave on that note. I am done with the text. I want to leave a hope. Because, you see, Israel could also be quite a lesson to this nation. Microcosm. And I'm just seeing, just around me, I don't know the future and God can come and intervene and He does do that. He's intervened in this nation more than once or twice. Many, many times. Second Chronicles 7.14 A lot of people use this verse somewhat out of context. And I might treat it something like that possibly here. I'm not trying to. But there's a principle here. You see who he's talking to here is a nation of Israel in the Chronicles. And God has a promise. God has a warning. But I think there is an application here. We as a church often do this. Sometimes it's not taking the context, but I think that we can use this as a right principle. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. See, they got to the point where God shut up the heavens and there was no rain. He commanded the locusts to devour the land. He sent pestilences. And then in verse 14 is where this is at. Historically, that's what happened. 
as he's saying this. He says, here's how my people do. They humble themselves. They pray to me. They seek me and my will. And they turn and repent from their evil and wicked ways. And God then says, I will hear you. I will forgive you. And I will heal you. So I had a negative note, but I always like to end on the positive note. That's what we would call people around us to do, and it starts one at a time. The nation is going to be judged. We know that. Always happens. They all will be judged. But God can give a cry out. And His church can make an impact upon people. So that's our challenge. I give a warning in the sense this could be where we're at. And you notice Paul here leaves it as we stop at verse 10 on a negative note. But we know that it comes to a dramatic conclusion at the end of chapter 11. God has His plan. God has His purpose. And we want to see that plan and purpose as clearly as we can and be able to respond to that. And so live a life that's according to Him. Let the people know that they have affronted the holiness of God and they need Him vastly and immensely. Let's pray. Father, Holy God, we have witnessed... The witnesses you have given us here today in these ten verses that no, you're not done with the nation of Israel. And there will be a time that we will see that as a nation they will come back to you. And it's not because of their own choice, but it's because of your own choice. And your calling is irrevocable. So that means we have to believe you're going to do that. Even though if we looked around us, we'd say, no way that can happen. The same way it is with this nation and with people around us. Lord, we should be striving to be praying for not only this nation, but ourselves. That we would not become blinded or deaf, not really hearing you just going along with the flow, but that, Lord, there would be a revival that starts with each individual here to pursue You even more. To have a revival within this church. Bring the people back who are sick, Lord. Make them starve and hunger for Your Word as they are sick now not wanting to spread the disease, but at the same time we know that You also heal those kind of sicknesses. And so, Lord, we pray that the church can come back and be ready to be worshiping You and then going out with a full cup, running over. (coughs) We give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.